Uh, let me take just a minute or two to um, make you aware of the significance of this time of year for opportunities to make Christ known and to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to have gospel conversations and to um, spread the good news of Christ. And so I want to, again, remind us as a church to be earnestly in prayer for the tea, the ladies' tea, that's a, a very significant uh, evangelistic opportunity next Saturday. And uh, be sure to be praying about that. Some of you may, if, uh, as you invite, many of them are inviting unsaved people. So let's be sure to pray for that, that event, for the women's ministry team, for all the hostesses, for the speaker, and for the hearts of those who come, that they will really begin to understand the wonders of God's grace in the gospel. Uh, I also want to make you aware that uh, some of you like um, are having opportunities to give things to people. So our church has a number of these free booklets. It's a, actually a little book. Uh, it's only about uh, 50 pages or so. And it's called uh, A Very Different Christmas. What are you hoping for this year by Rico Tice? Very clever, very clear in the gospel, very well written. It's compelling. Uh, it's a very good read and uh, very short might be something you might want to give to someone, but read it first so that you know what you're giving them and you can interact with them about it. And uh, also we have a number of other uh, seasonable uh, tracks and things, a breathtaking moment. These are all available for you at the free literature thing on the left as you leave the worship center today. Uh, let's uh, open our Bibles here. We're going to read the scriptures this morning from the second chapter of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, it's on page 1100 and 42 in your pew bible a familiar text to many of us and yet we're just going to focus on one aspect of this uh, text as we go, go through our advent series this year follow along with me now as we read matthew chapter 2 verse 1 now after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea in the days of herod the king Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem, of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Jerusalem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Would you join me in praying together? Father, once again, as we read this text, we are coming to a a narrative, a story that is quite old, and yet uh, because of the number of years and the differences in culture and time frame, Lord, these things can seem a little obscure to us, but we pray that you would help us to have insight into what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand from this text. We pray that we might understand and gain a new insight into the wonders of Christ. And we pray that you would also help us to understand the one who is being presented here to us. And not only understand him, but Lord, may we, like those magi, bow in awe before the one who made all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the term fake news. I'm not here to talk about political things this morning, but obviously the term has been coined to draw attention to the fact that there often is inaccurate reporting in the news media. But I'm here to tell you that uh, there's another phrase I think that is probably legitimate to use. Uh, Again, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes here specifically. Please don't see me as saying that at all. But uh, as I've thought about this, I think the term fake Christmas could refer to those customs, perhaps some of the traditions that we observe that have been added to or modifying the narratives that we read in Scripture regarding Jesus' birth. In other words, if you look, for example, even in our hymnal, page one, number 197, if you look at your hymnal, you can open it up, it's okay. 197, we're not going to sing it, you don't need to sing it, please. But there's the song, We Three Kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar. It rhymes, sounds good, but nowhere do we read in Scripture that I've ever read that there were three kings, Right? In other words, it doesn't say the number of these people who came from afar in the east. It doesn't say, I didn't read a number there at all. And it didn't say that they were kings. It used another term, magi, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I hate to say it, but don't, I'm not trying to cause problems with anybody, but I think it might be helpful if we just sort of modify this a little bit. And we might just sort of reassign these folks And maybe we'll put them over here for the time being. And what we're going to suggest is that the text, if you'll notice there, talks about the three magi coming and they came to the house. The term used in Luke's gospel indicated that the shepherds approached a guest room. Two different terms. So we would understand that really the magi perhaps most likely, don't know exactly when, came subsequently to the birth of Christ on the night in which he was born. And so some people think it's like two months later, may have been up to two years later, they arrived at that scene. Now again, I'm not trying to raise controversy for the sake of controversy. I'm just pointing out that we all have some things 
that we have sort of assumed or we sort of, you know, we had the three camels and three figures. That's fine. I'm not here to try to criticize those things. I'm just saying this. We're going to look at the text and we have here, according to what Matthew 2 has recorded for us, we have these magi. They're not kings. They arrive in Jerusalem and we don't know how many there were. And it's not, not even, doesn't even say they came on camels. They could have come on horses very likely. Probably was a, a fairly significant entourage, I would think. And uh, they were looking for the one born king of the Jews. The reason they made that particular city their destination is because a star was leading there, leading them there. And the Magi assumed that everyone in that area around Jerusalem would have been certainly familiar with the fact that this was a, a momentous event because there had been a royal birth. But when they come to town, in verse 3, we get the impression that when they started asking questions, when they arrive on the scene, and these are significant people in the minds of uh, the powers-to-be, people get a little upset, agitated, excited, nervous. It's unclear how to translate that particular word. But in asking around, to hear the experts in the law, the scribes, the chief priests, the people who really are in charge of the religious uh, order of the day there in Bethlehem, they identified, according to Micah the prophet, that the place where the king of the Jews was to be born was not, no less it was to be Bethlehem. And indeed, here the Magi make their way to Bethlehem, and in making their way there, they are amazed at this phenomenon that the star that led them from the east is also now a star that's leading them there, which is a very short distance away maybe less than a couple, uh, less than some miles away, not too many. And here at this point, they are not in a stable. They're at, no longer in a guest room. As I said, they're in a house. And the reappearance of the same star caused these magi to be filled with great joy at the fact that this phenomenon was happening again unquestionably it was a miraculous event why well because of the timing of the appearance of the star it was the limited visibility of the star and it was the movement as they went forward it also moved with them sort of alluding back to when god led the children of israel through the wilderness now this morning i just want to look at two questions regarding this passage of scripture and the first is very simply who were these magi who are these people and what's the significance of them coming uh, to see this site of the birth of Christ? And secondly, what is the significance of the way they responded to Jesus Christ as an infant in offering their worship to him, which we read in verse 10? And as we look at these two questions, I want us to sort of back off from the text and focus on really the the emphasis, which I think is one of the most significant things here in the text, it talks about in verse 11. They fell down and worshipped him. Years ago, Steve Camp wrote a song about worship and he coined these words, which I think have a lot of significance to them. He said, it's not about us, it's all about him. And I think that's sort of what this text seems to be strongly emphasizing. It's not about us. 
So during these days of Advent, during the weeks of Advent, as we look through this sermon series, my objective is going to be using these magi and their response to Christ as a way of sort of helping us think this principle through. It's all about Him, not so much about us. And I want us to notice also that um, as we go through here, hopefully the things will become more clear as we try to clarify. Well, let's say first question, who were the Magi? Well, Magi were, if you boil it all down, basically were pagan astrologers. They were people who had an ability to, over years, that they had gained a knowledge of how to predict events regarding the future uh, based on looking up into the skies, noticing what was happening among the stars and the planets, and they were highly respected. They were looked at as people that were very much, their opinions and their insights and the, the, the things that they were predicting, these things were all highly valued. And they go way back, I would say, at least back, we have record of magi or astrologers who serve as a magi, uh, back to like 500 B.C. and going forward into the time of the Roman Empire. Some have suggested in doing some more research on this idea of the magi, they looked at them as starting really in a group of uh, the Medes, the Medes and the Persians, they were religious leaders there of some particular Religion there in Persia, it's unclear. But in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ, there were many magi. Uh, not just one or two, but there were many of them that functioned in many of these different societies and cultures. And as, as I said again, they were very much respected for their intuition, for their predictions, for their knowledge regarding astronomy, which they studied, but they also incorporated aspects of astrology and the occult. So we have a very unusual thing happening here with these individuals coming into the scene here of Jesus' birth. Just to give you a little background, if you notice Jeremiah chapter 39, there's an interesting mention of a number of individuals in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And there's the name of one of the guys, and he is the chief magi in Nebuchadnezzar's court mentioned in the Old Testament. Not only there, but we have mentioned in the book of Daniel uh, a number of mentionings of magi. Again, some translations use the word, and they're wrong here, uh, magicians, although we know that comes from magi. Magician is very closely associated. We understand that. But again, it's helpful just to keep the term magi um, because we think of illusionists sometimes as magicians, but these are astrologers. And they were advising the king. Numerous times we have insight of that regarding the future and all those kind of things. Now, what do they do? They are people who are seeking to notice what's happening in the heavens. And for example, if they ever observed a comet, uh, if they ever observed a falling star, which is a meteor, meteorite, then they would predict from that and draw the conclusion that rulers who are currently in place are going to fall from their positions of power and authority. There's going to be a shakeup in the people who are ruling at that time. And when they see these kinds of astrological signs in the skies, it's no wonder that the rulers 
who are within the vicinity of these magi, these astrologers, that they're going to get very nervous when there's the sighting of this particular uh, heavenly observance, some kind of a, uh, a um, comet or falling star or whatever. In some of my research, I came across a comment about Nero. According to historians, that Nero, the Roman ruler, actually slaughtered, had put to death, a number of people around him, the nobles around him, because he didn't want to be the one who was going to be the one dying when there was a prediction of a comet that was made by one of these magi in his day. He said, I don't want to be the one that's going to be died and lose, removed from the scene, so these guys will be the people who will fulfill what that, prophet, that prophecy of that uh, comet is saying. So it's no surprise then, in the text of Scripture here, that when these magi appear on the scene, we've got some kind of star in the, in the skies, it's no wonder that King Herod is very nervous. He is very agitated. And he is interested in knowing insights from these magi as to what do we make of this particular phenomenon. The magi, of course, have come to Jerusalem because that's where they expected to find this king of the Jews. And Matthew, interestingly enough, seems to be making a point here as he's writing his gospel to a Jewish audience. So he is trying to fashion the facts of Jesus' of Jesus's life, the Messiah's life, and point out some very interesting, scratch your head, is, how do you make sense of that? Comments. For example, you have these magi appearing on the scene. They talk to the leaders there, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the people who are really in the know, and trying to discern from them, give me some insight in your writings, the Old Testament prophecies, regarding the birthplace of Messiah. And even though they know the answer to that, they really seem to have no interest in this Messiah. That is quite strange. That's quite odd. No wonder Matthew draws attention to that. Here are people coming from far, far, far away, and they're very interested in it. And here are the local folks who know these things, who have confirmed them with the prophecy of Scripture, and they seem like, eh, not so interested. Reminds me of the statement that John made in his gospel. It says, the Messiah came into his own, his own people, his own people didn't receive him, didn't welcome him. And here are these magi, despite, as they come on the scene, bringing this interest and in, in very much uh, bringing attention to all that's going on in that time, here are the experts in the law, having all this insight into Micah's prophecy. They're blind. They're totally blind to the amazing incredible revelation in world history that's unfolding right at that moment. Like they can't see it. They knew the facts of Scripture. But it's clear that they did not know the God who authored the Scripture. They didn't lack revelation. What they lacked was regeneration. They lacked having a heart that was made alive and brought out of a sense of being cut off and dead 
and spiritually speaking, and made alive so that they could see the glory of Christ. And what an irony. What an irony that Matthew shows us is going on here, that people who are a group of mystics, a group of astrologers, coming from far away, recognize the king of the Jews. And some have even said, and I'm not sure I'm going to go this far, but I'm just telling you what some people in thinking this thing through, and again, we have to be careful, the text does, Scripture doesn't say. But some have supposed that they, they were converted, these magi. That they were perhaps some of the earliest believers in Christ. I don't know whether that's true or not. But it's clear that Matthew is showing this great distinction between people who are valuing and appreciating and worshiping Christ and those who don't seem to have any interest in him at all, even though they're very religious. It seems to me that one of the things Matthew is trying to say here in this text with the Magi coming there is that the star that was over that house of that newborn king of the Jews was signifying something very significant, and that was this. All the kings of the world, all of the rulers of the world, all the presidents, all the dictators of this world, they are going to fall. They are going to be removed from the scene one day because there is a king who is above all kings who is now showing forth his reign and his rule. It is now breaking into this world in which we live. And there is, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase in the government of this Messiah. It's going to be a worldwide kingdom and reign. Not just some big empire covering vast areas of land, but the entire world. This one born in obscurity is the one who is going to change the whole world order. As I've thought about that, I have this question in my mind in terms of application for us to think about this morning. Isn't it true that most of us, if not all of us, we love our autonomy? We love to be the people who call the shots in our lives. We like to be in control. We like to know that we are doing what we want to do and things are happening the way we want them to happen. And, and we have our own way of thinking how the world ought to be. And any time it doesn't go that way, boy, we have lots of reasons that we get irritated, agitated, frustrated, actually sometimes depressed. And I wonder if this text is not telling us, based on that star and that, those magi identified, saying there's a huge change in the world order. Isn't that a comment that some of you, that all of us need to take to heart? And that is, we are not the rulers that we think we are. We are not people who are going to hold on to control of our lives. We need to let go of things that we think we can hold on to and release them and surrender them to the King of Kings. Just like these magi came and they gave gifts, they didn't say, here, we'll loan this to you for a period of time, but we want it back. No, they came and gave gifts. There was a sense of surrendering that. And I wonder if there's some this morning who you say, I'm unwilling to really to fully surrender to the King of Kings. There's certain areas of my life I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to give them up. And I think this is the, the time in which the Lord is trying to remind us, no matter what your sufferings have been, 
no matter what your grievances are with God, no matter what your assumptions are of how God ought to operate, I assure you, you are not in control of this world the way you think you want, to be, want it to be. It is only Christ. There's only one King of Kings. and He is going to come with great power and great glory one day, and He will put things in His order, I assure you. Well, that leads me to my second point. What was the significance then of the actions of this, these magi gathered on that occasion? Mind you, these are individuals who had been involved probably for many years in the pagan practice of astrological forecasting. Here they are in the presence of the king of the Jews and these stargazers, these diviners, are filled with a sense of reverential awe. They are humbly adoring this little infant, this little child. But they have perceived that this one is unique. This one is, 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 a, is someone who stands out from the rest, who has a glory, who is esteemed to be of great value and a great honor. They were able to see what so many people couldn't see. They worshipped not the stars. They did not worship the star that led them to that place. At that moment, they were worshiping what Revelation chapter 22 calls Jesus the bright morning star, the Son of God. The sad reality is that there are people in our world who do worship the stars. It's in the realm of astrology, that's exactly what they do. They worship the stars, the planets, and the moon. Astrologers believe that the heavenly bodies somehow influence, some would say even determine, what the events of the earth will be like. Astrologers have a great emphasis on calculating and finding out the exact moment of your birth. The day, the hour, and you know the exact time of the, uh, the, was the clock was reading on that particular day in the year and all that stuff. And by the way, horoscope, because they like to develop these natal horoscopes, your birth horoscope. Horoscope, by the way, means hour, horo, and scope, skapas, which means to watch. To watch the hour, that's, the, what, that's what they are all into. And supposedly astrologers are able to plot the exact position of the heavenly bodies at that particular moment in which you were born. And, and they believe that there's a correspondence between everything in the heavens and everything here on earth. And somehow they've come up with the idea that the position of the heavenly bodies at that precise moment you're born shapes your character and shapes ultimately your destiny. This is the kind of faith system that they've been duped in believing. They pass it off as scientific, but it's actually a form of divination. It is a trying by occultic means to gain hidden knowledge, hidden information that is not available to us, only available to God. But astrology is not some obscure practice. It is widely practiced, much so, more, more so than I think we believe. All sorts of people, including people with high levels of authority, high positions of, of responsibility, have been known to consult astrologers. I came across this unbelievable quote 
from Donald Regan. Not, let me clarify, he was the chief of staff for Ronald Reagan, the president, but Donald Regan, can you imagine the confusion that was when those guys worked together? But this is during the Reagan years. Regan wrote in his book, for the record, he wrote this, quote, Virtually every move and decision that the Reagans made during my time as White House Chief of Staff was cleared in advance with a woman in San Francisco who drew up horoscopes to make certain that the planets were in favorable alignment for the enterprise when it was propitious, for example, to move the President of the United States from one place to another. They would want the horoscopes to tell if that was the right thing to do. Or, res or schedule him to speak in public or to commence negotiations with a foreign power. Unquote. Throughout history, not just in the Reagan administration, but down through the years of history, going back into the times even before Christ, even during the great kings of Babylon, so many people who are in positions of authority and who are ruling and reigning, they were the ones seeking this kind of advice because they wanted the inside information so they'll know what would come out and have a good result. Of course, there are so many flaws with this mindset, this kind of uh, teaching, this kind of belief system with astrology. One is that it's pre-scientific. And by that I mean, if all of these deductions are based on observing the night sky, well, for centuries, the observing of the night sky was limited to your naked eye. It's only what you could see. And now you add to that the tremendous amount of information that has now been gained through, for example, the Hubble telescope that can see so far away. It has now, since the time all these things were developed, they have discovered in the last 230-some years, the last two planets... I won't add Pluto, but you could add that one if you still think it's a planet. But Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, all were discovered in the last 230-some years. Well, how does that fit into these charts? And so therefore, all these assumptions and conclusions, they're very much inaccurate and unreliable. Now, I want to take just a second here. I want to go through the Bible and how the Scriptures talk and deal with the idea of astrology. It, there are so many times in which it is forbidden. It is that which is warned against. Uh, first, I'd like to suggest is Deuteronomy 18. So if you have your Bible, just find your way to Deuteronomy chapter 18. So many times in the pages of Scripture, God prohibits His people from using the stars, using the planets, to gain concealed knowledge through occultic means. And so we find here in Deuteronomy 18 this blanket inclusive condemnation of all forms of divination, which of course includes astrology. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead 
That's a pretty blank, pretty clear blanket prohibition of all those forms of divination. And then in a, in a lament that's found also in Isaiah chapter 47, this is over uh, the fact that Babylon at the time was the world empire that had now begun to attack, had attacked uh, Jerusalem and destroyed it. And so uh, Isaiah is writing now about the fact that someday there are words of comfort for God's people that will be rebuilt someday in the latter part of that book. Chapter 47, Isaiah says this. Speaking for God, the prophet writes, Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries of which you have labored from your youth. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. He's talking now to those who in Babylon, the Magi, and people who are offering these kind of predictions. He says, Behold, they will become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It's clear as you go through Scripture that many reasons are given as to why God brings this judgment, and one of them is this. The day of judgment that came upon the children of Israel when Jerusalem was destroyed was because they had also gotten caught up in this idea of worshiping the moon and the sun and the host of heaven, the stars. We read in Jeremiah chapter 8, that in doing that, the worshiping the sun, moon, and the stars, which they have loved, they have served, they have gone after, they have sought, and they have worshipped. That's why they ran into so many difficulties with the captivity. Now here's the bottom line. The stars and planets are only created heavenly bodies. That's all they are. They were made by God to govern the night. Not to govern the lives of people. That's so important to understand. According to Psalm 19, the heavens do not declare the destiny of man. They declare what? The glory of God. Psalm 147 says this. God counts the number of the stars. He gives, them, he gives names to them. His understanding is infinite. Immeasurable knowledge. Amos chapter 5, verse 8 says, God made the Pleiades, which is one of the constellations, and, and Orion. The Lord is His name. He's the one that made that constellation, the stars that make it up. And then in Isaiah 44, hear the words of God speaking through Isaiah. He says, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone and, and uh, causing the omens and boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men, magi, to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant Isaiah, and performing the purpose of his messengers. You see, the deception of astrology is that the planets and the stars determine a person's fate. 
The truth is this, my friend. Jesus, who created the starry host, He's the one who rules over all of His creation. And He is the one who controls every event of your life. He's the one who placed the stars in space and assigned the planets their orbit around the sun. And He is the one who is to be worshipped, not the planets themselves and not the stars, including our own sun. Indeed, the stars and planets cannot rescue us from harm and from danger and from difficulty. Indeed, the stars and the planets cannot rescue us from the day that's coming in which the just judgment from God will, will be unleashed against all mankind. But the one who was born King of the Jews, the perfect Son of God, the sinless one, who offered himself as an unblemished sacrificial lamb on that cross, and then was raised from the dead, proving that his atoning death was sufficient to pay for our sins. He defeated the evil one. He overcame the forces of demonic activity and evil spirits that are in this world in the kingdom of darkness. It is Jesus who is the only rescuer for helpless, enslaved sinners like you and me who need to be indeed protected from all of the evil spirits around us. Only security can be found in Christ and Christ alone. Let me encourage you this morning to make Christ the one you confess as Lord that you bow before Him, that you yield your life to Him, that you surrender to Him as Master and serve Him as Lord and the King and Ruler over all. Jesus is indeed the bright morning star. When I go out early in the morning, I love to take walks very early. Sometimes I'm out at 5 a.m. in the morning. It's a whole different world here in Long Island, five in the morning. Let me tell you, it's quiet. And you look up in the sky, and some of the light pollution is not as big of a factor at that point. But it's so dark, and the other day I noticed it. Here was the moon here, and here is a bright, bright star. I don't know what it was. It might have been Venus. I, don't, I didn't verify which exactly heavenly body it was. But it was the one that was the predominant one in the sky. And what that's saying is you're going to see that one longer than any of the other ones as the dawn begins and the skies begin to brighten. You will see that one longer than the rest. And what he's saying here is, I think he's saying, it will become quite dark in this world. It's going to go more and more toward further evil, further corruption, further war and, and, uh, and violence and destruction in all different levels. But there is coming one who is the light, that all this evil will not overcome him. He will overcome it. And therefore, he's going to usher in a kingdom of God in fullness. Therefore, plot your life by him. Trust him as your savior. Rely on him and his providential leading and control over every event of your life. Worship Let's pray.
Our fathers, we bow before you today. We are reminded once again that we have a tendency to want to be in control. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know how to make things happen the way we want them to. We have a desire to want to be our own rulers. Father, today I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, all of the hearts of everyone here today, Lord, to see that we are not able to be that person. There's only one worthy to be the King of Kings. There's only one worthy to be truly worshipped and to be reigning over all things. I pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts toward Jesus, the one who came fulfilling your sovereign plan, the one who accomplished your predictions and prophecies, and the one who has made great promises about what's going to happen in the future. Lord, may we focus the eyes of our hearts upon Christ, the one who gave himself for us. Help us to see the wonders of your love. Help us to see the the glories of salvation in Christ. Help us to see the, 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 the grace that you're extended through Christ that will forgive and cleanse us from all sin. Lord, teach us, we pray, in these moments to worship you as we gather around the Lord's table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.